Mississippi was one of the most powerful states in the Union when it seceded and joined the Confederacy. Over the next 16 years, devastating military campaigns, revolutionary emancipation, long-term army occupation, and groundbreaking legislation redefined the state and the nation. The Civil War and Reconstruction Governors of Mississippi is a digital history project that provides free online access to the state's governor's papers, about 20,000 documents, from just before the Civil War through the era of Reconstruction and into the New South. Funding for this program was made possible by the Dale Center for the Study of War and Society at the University of Southern Mississippi. Welcome to this evening's live stream presentation here on the Tattooed Historian's Facebook and YouTube channel. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian. And we are in the final episode, part five of five of our live stream with CWRGM. So welcome, everyone. Uh, tonight's panel, Dr. Susanna J. Ural is Professor of History and Co-Director of the Dale Center for the Study of War and Society at the University of Southern Mississippi. She is the author of numerous books, articles, editorials, blog posts, columns, and digital history projects that share cutting-edge historical ideas and research with scholars, educators, and the public. Dr. Stephanie Seal Walters is the USM Digital Liaison in the Humanities. Steph earned her PhD from George Mason and focused her studies on loyalism in Virginia during the American Civil War. On top of a revolution, I'm sorry, American Revolution. What? Where? Because everybody really. I got vote. that. I got, more, I got talking you. about the Civil War today. So. I'm going to blame it on my my Pfizer shot today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, on top of being a, quite the regular on my programming, uh, Steph has been a leader in the classroom when it comes to digital humanities, and she has one of the best pugs I've ever met in my life. And I, miss, I miss that pug. I miss it. Right. He's right there. <laughs> He's already sleeping. Uh, our special guest tonight, uh, Dr. Ann Sarah Rubin from UMBC. Uh, Professor Rubin joined the UMBC History Department in fall of 2000. Her teaching and research focus on the American Civil War, the U.S. South, 19th century America, and digital history. Through the Heart of Dixie, Sherman's March in America was, uh, is one of her latest works, which explores the way Americans have remembered Sherman's March. It was published in 2014. Her first book, A Shattered Nation, The Rise and Fall of the Confederacy, 1861 to 1868, won the 2006 Avery O. Craven Book Prize for the best book in Civil War history. A Shattered Nation focuses on Confederate nationalism and identity. She also has worked extensively on uh, the electronic media digital project, The Valley of the Shadow, The Eve of War, which focuses some par parts of that on my area. So thank you everyone for being here this evening. Thank you. I hope I got everyone else's intro right. I don't know why I messed up stuff. I'm, I don't know. It's, it's, it's okay, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I should have had. I should have this memorized by now. I don't know what's going on. No. Uh, <laughs> but for our final episode, this is actually going to be part two of our uh, presentation on Civil War memory and dissent uh, during the war itself. And uh, dissent is 
one of the big things that I like to read about because I didn't hear a lot about it when I was younger and growing up uh, in like, let's say the 1980s, 1990s. I know I'm dating myself there, but uh, it's a nice thing to think about that this effort wasn't all, all, you know, everyone for it and this great cause everyone's, you know, speaking about. Uh, and then Civil War memory also is something that affects us to this day, every day of our lives. And we we see it all the time in various ways. So this is going to be a great night. And I'm so sad this is our last night, Susanna, but uh, thank you so much for setting all this up for us. Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding me? Thank you for hosting it, John. I mean, the world does not want to know what it would have looked like if I had just been doing all the tech in the background. You wouldn't have seen anything. Um, but thank you for doing this. And thanks everybody for joining us. It's been It's been such a good run. It has. We've had a great time. We've talked about so many different uh, people who usually aren't written about or haven't been yet. And I think that's a very important thing where we're seeing the common person, the the yeoman, if you will, and uh, of, of Mississippi in a new way. Yeah. And if you know, if we have listeners out there, or viewers who, who haven't heard about the Civil War and Reconstruction Governors of Mississippi Project, what what projects like these do? There's one in Kentucky that focuses on the period from the election of Lincoln through the end of the Civil War, and they really launched this, this idea of these types of projects. There's another starting at the University of Alabama, and both Mississippi and Alabama cover all the way through the Civil War and Reconstruction. And we focus on the governor's papers because in the 19th century, if you had a if you had a concern that you felt like no one else could address in your community, or sometimes you just went straight to the governor anyway, you reached out to your state's chief, chief executive. And it really didn't matter what your class was. It didn't really matter what your gender was. It didn't matter if you couldn't read or write, you would get somebody to write on your behalf. And you can see all sorts of documents where people make a mark. And what's really, I think, fulfilling to me as a historian is that by going all the way through Reconstruction, we're also starting to hear directly from African-Americans as well. And so it, it, these collections, these governor's papers that sound like you're just going to hear from the very top echelon of a state actually lets you hear from a true cross-section of Mississippi, in our case, as they experience one of the most revolutionary times in American history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Anne, with, with the uh, idea of dissent, uh, it's, it's just... One of those things that just really is intriguing to me, and I think we need to really focus a lot more on that going going forward as historians than we have for the last decade or more, you know, years and years that we've been focusing on that. What kind of dissent do we see early on uh, during the war? Because it seems like it starts pretty early, correct? It does start really early. And some of the, the letters that uh, the project shows and, and other sorts of, of sources that we've read, the earliest forms of dissent aren't necessarily dissent from the Confederacy per se or from the um, the state per se, but they're actually just calls for assistance, right? So that, that particularly for people from the lower classes and even the, the kind of yeoman farmer class, um, losing the the male head of the household means losing often your primary agricultural labor. And so these wives and mothers who are left at home, often with young children, are struggling 
as early as six or seven months into the war, as early as the fall of 1861, you see them um, writing and asking for supplies. You see them writing and asking for uh, poor relief. And, and what happens is it sort of starts to work its way up the chain so that what might previously have been able to be handled in the neighborhood or in the town, when neighborhoods and towns can't handle it, they go with this expectation that the governor is going to help them. Hmm. Why, why won't, uh, why can't the local areas help? Is it because so many people have gone off to war and, and they're kind of on their own in a way and they have to go to a higher uh, office? In some cases it's because of that. In some cases it's actually, so the, the project that I'm actually working on right now has to do with um, starvation and food shortages during the war. And in fact, the, there are food shortages in certain areas of certain kinds of, of supplies. Again, as early as 1861, the biggest one that you see a lot of in governor's papers actually is salt um, because people don't have access. Salt was largely imported, came through the blockade or, or would have had to come through the blockade once the war started. Um, and of course you need salt to preserve your meat without that there's there's uh there's no hope of preserving meat to get you through and of course you want to be able to preserve meat because you don't want to have to feed your livestock through the winter so it's this kind of cycle so locality you know you have have people from all levels are pleading with the governors to to get them salt to distribute salt it, it's actually it's, it's a big issue <laughs> This is so funny because it's reminding me of our first episode where we had, you know, um, Jeff Gambrone from right. the Department of Archives and History. Yeah. In Mississippi here. And he said, oh, you know, the documents are fascinating. I mean, they're always talking about salt. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking I'm like, yeah, if, if you're not into these documents, I don't know if you're going to find that fascinating. <laughs> but if you study the 19th century, it is because because you're right. And if you don't have like in the in an age before refrigeration, if you don't have salt, you have a serious problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's, that's Jeff, really interesting. Jeff has hooked me up with some salt letters. Jeff knows those. <laughs> I mean, I was just up doing some work in the archives on Monday, and Jeff is just all over. He just yeah, it's like he knows he knows all he knows where all the bodies are buried. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Steph, what's it like going through these documents and and helping to have these uh, uh, transcribed, digitized, and seeing these ideas of dissent and and people you know, voicing their opinions pretty early on or even midway through this this conflict? Um, well, it's interesting, right? Um, because not only am I a scholar who works at the University of Southern Mississippi, I, I was born and raised um, in Mississippi. I only lived outside of the state for about six years and that was to get a PhD. Um, and even though I'd been through lots of Civil War courses with Susanna um, and gone through historiography classes at Southern Miss, you know, you really still miss these stories of dissent. Um, and even as someone who is, you know, born and raised in this state, you don't hear stories about dissent. Um, so to helping transcribe these letters and especially putting our students on this and having them transcribe, it really is opening up a completely different world about what were the realities of the era. Um, because you do very much still to this day have this undertone in the state that, you know, everything was uniform and everybody was was, you know, let's go fight for the Confederacy. And that's obviously not 
the case. And I think that's one of the things that our students are finding not only, you know, as they're learning the history through transcription, they're also surprising themselves um, and finding a lot of dissent. And to be completely honest, um, Susanna, you can agree or disagree, back me up, I don't know what, but as you're looking through these, it's it's insane the amount of dissent. There's, in fact, it feels like there's more dissent than support for the war a lot of times, especially once you get into 6263. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if, if you've ever read about war and then you hear somebody say, you know, we were united in our feelings, you just get suspicious. You just like, mm-hmm. you know, people are rarely fully united on anything and certainly not in a pressure cooker that conflict creates. So, you know, when you when you see these monuments that, you know, talk about how, you know, everybody in the county was united in this effort. And I'm looking at this monument thinking, number one, the county didn't exist during the war. But when <laughs> we were like right next door to some serious right. unrest in Jones County. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but it's also I love that word dissent because it also lets you capture like the, the full spectrum of what dissent can be. Right. And Anne was touching on this earlier, too. And Steph is is such a resource you know to me as we brainstorm on this because Steph writes about loyalism during the American Revolution right so you know and so you just kind of think about how dissent works during con- armed conflict and that you know it, it it can work in many different ways right so the elites who have promised their support but are threatening to withhold that if you don't start providing salt or if you don't start stop seizing my enslaved laborers and using them to work on fortifications when I need them working on my land you know dissent can take many forms it can become armed it can it can it can be tragic you know the the women on the home front that we talked about in the second episode writing in like you know these soldiers just took my pony how the heck do you expect me to plow my fields i've got four young children my husband is off serving what are you doing so dissent is this is this broad spectrum. And and you're right, you know, Steph, you 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 can't get through, I think, 10 documents without touching on some of it. Someone's I, gonna be dissenting. <laughs> I think I think there's sort of two factors at work. One is no one's writing to the governor to say, wow, you're doing a great job. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like that doesn't really happen. You don't get that. So so on the one hand, it is a slightly skewed sample. But yeah. to, to touch on what Susanna was just saying too about dissent being this spectrum, I think that's a really important insight that at least historians have had for, for a long time now, right? Which is that Confederate support for the Confederacy or, or, or uh, a position during the war is not binary. It's not always on or off, right? That, that um, yes, there are certain populations that are never on the side of the Confederacy, right? Unionists, and you highlight, now I'm blanking on his name, but that great letter from a unionist uh, who, who writes to the governor after the war to say, I was a unionist this whole war, and I don't think I should have to take an oath of allegiance because I had my allegiance all along, which I just found fascinating. Oh, yeah. Yeah, look for that document. That's W.T. Rowland. He actually fought <laughs> in an Illinois cavalry unit. His brothers, his cousins, they all went up. So, yeah, and absolutely. I mean, that is that letter is spectacular. But then, or African-Americans, for example, who really worked to undercut the Confederacy. But then there's a large population of people who are willing to support the Confederacy but put their family generally and their, you know, maybe in some cases their broader community at a higher 
they have a higher allegiance to them. And those are the kinds of people, again, that you see in these letters, um, like from uh, Kemper County or Lowndes County, I'm looking back at my notes too, to say, you know, there's deserters all over these counties and nobody is helping us capture them and nobody is turning them in. And it's like, yeah, why would they, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So so I think there's a spectrum there where, where there's dissent from the Confederacy that isn't necessarily ideological in nature and doesn't necessarily translate to support for the union. Yes, it's a great point to make. Yeah, just because you're dissenting from the Confederacy does not mean you're a unionist. Right. Um, and I think, too, some of those letters, um, the one that you were talking about, I think it's Madison County. It's in Canton, I think, where, you know, you have a Confederate officer writing in like they won't even help me try and round up these deserters. I mean, what are we going to do? To me, what that struck me as is not so much outright dissent as almost that kind of mid-war apathy. There's, there's just this sense that things are breaking down. They don't necessarily have a lot of faith in their local or their state government, let alone their national government. And it's just kind of, we're just going to, it's it's like what you were kind of getting at there, Anne. It's like, we're just going to take care of our families. We're going to take care of our communities. And we're, you clearly aren't helping us. So we're going to have to get through this on our own. And I think too, right, if you're on the local level and you know that like, you know, John Doe up the street, you know that the reason he deserted is because, you know, two kids died and his wife, you know, is trying to manage. You're not going to turn him in. Right. 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 And, and in 1862, the Confederacy starts the conscription. And, and isn't it kind of like underscoring the fact that there is dissent when you have to conscript that, yeah. that early? I mean, on, I know that the U.S. Army is going to do it the following year. Is it, is it because of, you know, you could go either way with that, right? It could be like mm -hmm. either, either there's dissent going on here or you just realize that you're, you're sinking and you need men, you need manpower quickly. I mean, I actually think it's more the latter. You know, the Confederacy does mobilize, whether it's through conscription or volunteerism, some astronomically high percentage of its male population of eligible age. It's like 80 or 90 percent. I mean, it's, you know, they literally throw pretty much anybody that they've got into it. Um, I do think they turn to conscription because it's not um, maybe evenly distributed volunteerism and because also they have a bunch of one-year enlistments that are about to be up and they're worried people won't re-enlist. I don't know, Susanna can probably speak to this better than I can. Well, no, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much agreeing with you on this one. I mean, I think it's a couple things. I think one thing that's really interesting about the 19th century is that when, I, th I think in some ways because Civil War memory is what it is, when we see that these one-year enlistments are up and that these guys are thinking about not re-enlisting and going home, we're kind of shaking our head like, really? But they're so dedicated. Surely they're going to fight through, you know, the very end. And yet in their mind, and they'll talk about this. I've done my constitutional duty. I'm going home. The next guy can go. And there's, there is no hint that there would be any shame in that, that they're going to be less of, of a man, right. nothing. But I do think the fact that you don't have other members of the community stepping up to fill that gap. I do think that the Confederate leaders are worried enough to pass a conscription law that would, they knew was gonna be controversial. This has never happened before in American history. Right. And so I, it does speak to this early, you know, you're one year in, nobody's, no, it's, it, I shouldn't say that. I think in certain parts of the Confederacy, you have a pretty clear sense now of what war is. But if you're mm -hmm. in Mississippi 
by the time conscription's passed in April of 1862, you don't necessarily yet, right? Mm -hmm. They always talk about in the Western theater where, where we're sitting right now, you know, you, you don't really feel it until really Shiloh, right, mm -hmm. in 1862. And so you, you mm -hmm. haven't really experienced it yet. So I still think it's, it's interesting that conscription has to be passed. And then once you get what famously becomes known as that 20 slave law, which exempts large kind of wealthier um, plantation holders and slaveholders in the Confederacy, that's where I think what we're seeing in the documents here is a lack of understanding for any need for this. Now it starts to feel incredibly unjust. Right. Because the guy who owns 20 slaves, he can actually afford to go. Mm -hmm. Whereas I, with, a my, family, you know, with my small farm and my eight-year-old son, I, if I go, everything falls apart. Yeah. Farmers, merchants, business owners, you're, you got to go. Like you've got nothing. <laughs> you don't have anything to extend. You know, and, and the other thing, I mean, the 20 slave law is the most egregious, but those initial uh, Confederate Conscription Act has a huge list of exempted occupations. It has a huge, I love that. And do you it's notice- self-sabotaging. It is, but what's interesting is what they do after October of 1862, when they, when they you know, pass, start to pass this, the 20 slave exemption, then they start to say, okay, if you get that, but you have to contribute so many pounds of like bacon and food, they're like, well, okay, but we're going to balance this out. And they never, they never quite get it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in fact, when the union adopts conscription the following year, they're like, oh, sweet. Like we've seen all the mistakes the Confederates made. So first of all, let's set a cap on what a substitute can cost by, by just having a commutation fee. So they learn from the failures of Confederate conscription. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, it, I have heard of the dissent in, in post-war memoirs, which again goes into who is this former rebel soldier intending for this to be read by, you know, mm -hmm. late, later on? Who's, who's his audience and what is he trying to come across with? Because in popular history, I'll just say popular history in quotes, we, we've heard from since the early 1990s, we've heard of Sam Watkins. Mm -hmm. and, and he talks about conscription mm -hmm. in, in his memoir. And he talks about this uh, 20 slave law. And, and his opinion was, it's, uh, a, he called it a rich man's war, poor man's fight. And he said, mm -hmm. All of us wanted 20, 20 slaves so we could go home and all this. So he's trying to like use that as a way, which will go into, uh, you know, Civil War memory later as far as that post-war memoir stuff is concerned. But they're using that later as well, saying, well, we all wanted that so we could just go home and, you know, and do whatever. And it's just kind of ironic that you formulate uh, supposedly a nation based on a, a weaker central government and the central government tells you, well, you're going to have a conscription. Act. <laughs> it's kind of like, which side I'm wondering if there's dissent because that was like, that wasn't our original intent. Definitely. And was, Definitely. Yeah. I mean, let Anne take this one. She, yeah. she literally wrote the book on it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a huge problem, right? Because you have governors in particular, um, Joe Brown in Georgia, and then later Zebulon Vance in North Carolina, who they just won't play. Right. I mean, Joe Brown, what he does to counter the draft is he grossly expands the size of the Georgia militia. Mm -hmm. And then he even as Sherman is approaching Atlanta, Brown is like, I don't know if I'm going to sign over control of the Georgia militia to the Confederate yeah. Army. <laughs> 
this yeah. is really not the time, you know? So yes, it's, it's incredibly problematic, right? I mean, if, if the Confederacy teaches us one thing, it's that you can't actually fight a war with a decentralized government. It does not work. Yeah. And mm-hmm. honestly, I mean, if you actually want a decentralized government, don't go to war. Right. It, it's just, it always, you have to centralize to, to, to wage war successfully. You just do. Um, right. So yeah. And so the Confederacy's kind of frustrations going into this, it really set them up for some serious political theory. Unhappy. Just to put a little pin in the in the 20 slave exemption, I don't know the exact number, but my recollection is I think only 6,000 people took advantage of it. Interesting. Wow. So it is, you know, it is a bad sort of what we would consider today sort of public relations move. Yeah, it's the optics of it, right? The it's, optics are terrible, especially if, if only 6,000 people do it. It's just, yeah. it's bad all over. Yeah, but it's what's what's interesting to me, John, is that what we're seeing in the docs is 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 challenging what historians have concluded, or at least it concluded kind of by the early two thousands. There's a historian um, by the name of William Blair who wrote, "Oh my gosh, Anne, Virginia's private war." Thank you. All I was coming up with was with malice toward none, and he wrote that one too. Virginia's private war. And, you know, what he kind of points to is that for the most part, Virginians came to understand the need for conscription. Um, and, and what I think is happening is that as you can get into documents that take you to the lower classes, the middling classes that are really feeling the impact of this conflict. And when you can hear from them, you're like, I don't think they're understanding this. Um, and so it's, this is one of those areas where I think that our project is going to be able to challenge the historiography and push us a little further. I mean, I, I do think that one of the um, issues or, or, you know, we often flatten the Confederacy out, right, and try to, to make arguments that the whole place is the same. But particularly when you're thinking about something like conscription and you're thinking about areas that are touched by war and not touched by war, there's a huge difference between Virginia and Mississippi. So part of it is is definitely the kinds of sources that you use and that that the ways to get at especially lower classes are, are through these things like the governor's papers or, you know, occasionally maybe somebody kept a few letters, but it's so rare. Yeah. But um, it's also the this right in Virginia, maybe they're more pro conscription because the war is all around them. Yeah, but in Mississippi, the war is all around you too. Yeah. Alabama, not right. yeah, but Mississippi is one of those states in the Western theater that is just hammered by this yeah, war. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, so no, but it's 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 one of the things that it, it it could get interesting in terms of you know being able to do this comparison mm-hmm. uh, with Virginia. So I don't know. We're just. It'll be interesting in the future, I think, to see Mississippi and Alabama, which are two states that are more similar. And then Alabama, right, which doesn't get as hard hit. Right. Um, Right. Exactly. And see, okay, is this Mm. is this going to be different? Yeah. Hmm. No, I think you're right. And I one of the things I loved, and I mean, Stephanie McCurry uses this too, but I think one of the first places I saw it was in your book, women writing into the governor. Not necessarily, they weren't dissenting, but kind of doing this negotiation. Amy Taylor talks about this too, where, okay, I need you to send one home, son home, but I'll, I, I can send one of my younger sons in kind of a thing. And so- I know that's not me. 
I think that's Amy and Stephanie. No, is that Amy and Stephanie? That. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I love that element right. too, which can quickly become viewed as dissent. Um, the, you know, complaints from women on the home front, these types of things, when in fact it's not. They're just, they're literally trying to survive the war and while remaining loyal Confederates at the same time. Right. And I actually, I will say that when I, when I was looking over the materials you sent me to, to look mm -hmm. over for tonight and you sent me those, again, these letters um, about people resisting the draft and, and, and uh, complaining about the draft. And I thought, oh, let me look and see when they're from or not right. wanting to turn in deserters. That was the one was not, let me see if it, where it's from. Cause if it's from the winter, I think people are especially sort of, there's a lot of, of what what I when I teach at casual desertion, right? Or more like going AWOL. They come right. home for a little while, then they go back. Right. Now it's risky because you can get shot for desertion, and every once in a while yeah. people do get shot for desertion. But often, uh, maybe you spend yeah. some time in the stockade or you know, that that it's it's a trade-off. It's French leave. They go, but they come back. Yeah. Right, right. They're going for a little while. Mm -hmm. um, and again, there's a lot of that that you see often in letters from women also, especially if they're writing to their husbands saying, come home for a little while, then you can go back. Hmm. Uh, that kind of leads me to something that I often think about, which is how do we get from A to B with this idea of dissent? How do we get from we see these documents and primary sources which back up this idea that there was dissent of all kinds, whether it's just voicing your concern about, I don't think this war is going the right direction and we need to rethink this, to you know, taking up arms and, and, and doing something against uh, Confederates in the area and, and such, the, the more diehards. And then we get to the point where all of a sudden you know, like 1865, late 1865, 1866, and so on forward, we get this idea that it's one solid uh, idea that everyone was on the same page. Everything was fine. Uh, we have, as Susanna said, and as Steph has told me before as well, we have statues in towns for, for Confederates, and the town is actually Unionist, mm -hmm. uh, or, or there are a lot of Union troops from that area. So what changes with historical memory? Is it is it a defensive move on the on on the part of these people to be like, yeah, we may have lost, but we lost because of X, Y, Z? Uh, what what is it that we see in these documents and around other uh, Civil War documents where we see this transition of of saying, okay, we we have to change this narrative, especially with dissent, because you, that, you take it generally, or you take it from the documents, or where you you take it generally, and. I mean, and then I can fill in with some documents. Yeah, it's the triumph of the lost cause. It's the emergence of the lost cause, which, which we tend to think of it. You know, the 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 monument building and the putting the statues in the towns. That's 1880s, 1890s. Mm -hmm. But the writing and rewriting of histories of the war start immediately. And and a fact that many people don't know is the very phrase "the lost cause" comes from an 1866. History of the War by Edward Edward Pollard, who's a Richmond newspaper editor. So that's being shaped immediately. And the shaping of it is we were overwhelmed by the military force and the numbers and the wealth of the Union and, and not at all by the fact that there were 
4 million African-Americans in the South who didn't want us to win and that we as a Confederacy were riven by class conflict. That is immediately sort of out of the narrative. And what you get is this kind of uniform narrative of heroism and sacrifice that, that flattens out any kind of dissent to coin a word. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, and it's, I, one of the things I've noticed is that the war generation was actually, they seem more willing to talk about dissent, almost because everybody knew it was there and we, they all lived through it. Um, but it's, it's, it's later, right? I, and so I think, you know, you see this message that Pollard presents, you know, and, and Steph and I worked on this great document. Steph, I'm talking about the one from Governor Clark in 1865 when, you know, it's, and you guys go look at it. You, you'll see it in the sample docs um, under memory. Um, it's it's not great quality and does not reflect at all on the quality of the digitization for the project. Um, for now, we're having to use microfilm of, of the governor's ledger, but it's this great document from May of 1865 as he's leaving. And basically, he, there's this great line in there where he says, you know, our unanimity on the issue of secession was just, it's, it's just, it's just, there's no point in even discussing it. We were clearly united on this. And again, you know, if you look at some of the votes on secession and the secession conventions, you're like, no, you weren't. Yeah, no. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. But so some of that, right. And this is, this is the Pollard. This is, this is this message, right. That Anne's talking about. But I think one of the things that you see also within the wartime generation, though, is this willingness to discuss it because you can't deny it. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mississippians know that there were some Mississippians, white Mississippians, who originally fought for the Confederacy, who later fought for the Union, right? And you've, a lot of you have heard me talk about, you know, the nearby town of Summerall was named after a guy who did just that. So it's not like they're, they don't know this happened. But as the years go on, as you get to the next generation, you get less and less of this story. And that's what starts to get wiped out as they're kind of presenting these um, images of unity that they very much want to propose. Um, and it also gets increasingly whitewashed. I was, I was asked one time, why are there no monuments though to like emancipation and things like this? And I'm like, because that was not the story they were interested in telling. It just wasn't. And the people who were telling the story wrote the story. Um, and so this is how you get this, this lack of, of memory of really what is a really rich, rich story to tell. Mm -hmm. And of course, I also want to input in that, um, John, that's not necessarily new historically um, when it comes to rewriting like the story of a war or what happened. Um, I think what's interesting about the Confederacy is it's rewriting the story of the people who lost because at least in my time period it's the people who won who rewrite kind of the history of unity and you know the patriot cause and everyone was on board and of course studying loyalists i know that's very not true um so i think that's kind of the interesting part about the time period is it's not it's not the people who won who are writing the story it's the people who mm -hmm. won and I think that's kind of what's interesting about the Civil War era. And that's something I, I don't really see anywhere else that makes it kind of fascinating. The people who lose win the culture war. Yeah. And it's, it is, it's staggering, right? I mean, if you think about the way that the Civil War has, has been portrayed in literature and film and, you know, it's, it's so much of it has been 
whether openly or even not really overtly from a, a Confederate perspective. There's, there's something that Americans are so confusing because we both love a winner and love an underdog. Mm -hmm. And so somehow in the civil war case, right, it's the underdog who comes out as the kind of romantic heroes, mm -hmm. um, not the actual winners. That's an interesting point. And if you think about, you know, there's, there's plenty of underdog stories to tell with Union commanders, look at Ulysses S. Grant, look at, you know, there's all these underdog stories to tell, but you're right. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's the Confederacy that wins that story, um, wins that narrative for a very, very long time. And part of that, I think, is a function of two things. One is Ulysses S. Grant is not a good president. And his not being a good, his being a not good president, I think, in turn, colored for a very long time our understanding of him as a general. Good. And at the same time, Robert E. Lee, right, who he's always paired with, died early, right, yep. 1870, 70, 70, yep. 1870, and kept his mouth shut in public between 1865 and 1870. Yeah. And so he, it's easy for him to be deified and it's easy for even Northern whites to sort of succumb to this cult of Robert E. Lee in a way that uh, you just don't see with other, other cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I remember uh, growing up reading about these people, the, 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 I guess you could call them the elite of military command and, and mm -hmm. high power in the Confederacy and, and also the union, obviously. And then reenacting with people who, who would yell at me if uh, we would be doing a reenactment, a battle reenactment or something. And I would lean into it. Like you're leading it, like you're supposed to, with, like they tell you to, my ancestor never did that. My ancestor stood straight as a ramrod the entire way across the field. And it's like, you've never been shot at. <laughs> you're not reading the documents are you it's this thing of and and it was when we were doing when we were portraying confederate it was this idea that it was uh they they stood their ground until the last bullet until the last shoe fell off their foot mm -hmm. and all that stuff and it goes back to that lost cause narrative right where it's like they they don't they they're not human anymore they're mythological yes. godlike uh, uh, figures uh, because you, they're grasping. It's like we, everyone wants to remember the Alamo. It was a defeat, right. <laughs> you know, and, and it's just like, that's an American thing. They're still making movies about it. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting to think about that, that um, yeah, we have this idea of we love a winner, but then sometimes when the winner gets too good at winning, we like to have the underdog come back behind and, and, and take it because people are knocking everyone who wins in capitalism and they're like, Oh, they make too much of this or they do too much of that or whatever else, or they're too good at this sport. We don't like them. I'm, I'm wondering if that's the same way with some of the, some of the military commanders throughout history, because I know Winfield Scott gets no love. So he should. And, but, yeah. a ton of love. and that Anaconda plan. Right. Amazing. Yeah. And it, it worked. It worked till the end. <laughs> it worked. Um, it's interesting. I, I don't know if it's it's hard to love an underdog and a commander because they tend to do things that result in a lot of people dying. Right. So, yeah, I don't know if that's going to work as well there. But you're right. We do love an underdog and a commander 
as they kind of come up and kind of kind of master those skills, right? The ones who emerge who, again, I mean, Grant is just such a textbook example of this, who, you know, you don't necessarily think is going to be all that good at this um, and turns out to be, you know, exceptional um, at it. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's, 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 I think some of the, some of the stuff though with the Confederacy too is also very much tied into honor. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's a whole conversation. We can do multi-series podcasts about Southern honor and, you know, the, the historians have. Um, you know, and, it's, and again, as Lorian Foote would remind us, you know, it's not that Northerners didn't have a concept of honor too. It's very much a Victorian age, but it's a whole other can of worms in the South. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it's a powerful force mm -hmm. for sure and southerners just are more um how do i want to say it? they're sort of more open about this culture of honor whereas northerners again this is a huge gross overgeneralization but maybe are like a little more reticent about it and so you know it, i mean the the endurance right of what is it it's the um the cavalier and the Cavalier and Yankee. What is that book? Uh, Bill Taylor's book? Mm. I, can't, I can't remember which one you're talking about. <laughs> Never mind. Know. Let that one go. Cool. But no, I think you have to consider honor if you're going to consider lo the lost cause, if you're going to consider this kind of lingering sense of unity, that that, that we, the, this, this almost this moral right that everybody was on the same page until you start to think about, well, who's everybody? Because it seems to number one, not be African-Americans. Um, and it, and it seems to ignore, like I said, a lot of these experiences, um, that range from flat out armed unionists to people who just get fed up, um, with their local or their Confederate federal government. Um, and it's, and it's inability to do what governments have to be able to do. I mean, they have to be able to provide and protect. And, and as you see that breaking down, that's where this, this, unity um that people want to point to just was not there mm -hmm. yeah i would i would often refer people to what they wrote after the war memoir wise what their what their sons and daughters wrote mm -hmm. after the war about their fathers grandfathers etc and then go back to 1860 and 1861 and look at the secession documents and look at the secession conventions they have and look at what they said because if you if you deny the secession documents that's like denying the declaration of independence for the united states and saying that oh we didn't really mean that <laughs> you know in that way and it's kind of like the secession documents are declarations of independence of each state yeah. so if you want to know what they are talking about and what they are fighting for in, a, in you know in a majority way that's where you got to go and some of them are a little bit more firebrand than others Mississippi is a doozy. Yeah. Mississippi, Mississippi Texas. Yeah. Yes. In fact, when I teach students um, in basic, basic intro classes where we're still trying to teach them how to define a thesis statement, um, more often than not, I will use the Mississippi secession document to teach them what a thesis statement is. So not only is that shocking because most of those students were born and raised in Mississippi as well, um, but also, yeah, that line of secession and why they are seceding, you know, to, you know, maintain the institution of slavery, you know, there's nothing more thesis than that. Um, so, you know, Mississippi's for sure is a doozy. Right. And then you get to others, you get to, let's just say Virginia, and it's a little bit more lukewarm than that. And it's pretty, 
it's Virginia and you, you know about Virginia stuff. It's, it's very, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, it's really interesting when we're talking about primary sources, we're talking about the letters that you are transcribing and that you're digitizing for the masses. It's also very important to look at their words compared to what the state is saying at the same time and saying, what are they saying that's different and what is dissent? And how does that dissent transfer into memory? That's that's a huge undertaking. Yeah, and it's it's you know one and one of your comments earlier about you know you have to think about who's writing into the governor. Mm -hmm. So it, it's pretty much all complaints. You're right. Nobody. I I have not found a single document so far that's just like, like you are just doing great. Keep up your work. <laughs> right. um, just wanted to write that. Yeah, sorry, I took your time. You're doing yeah, good. exactly. So it's 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 definitely you know skewed toward complaints and toward problems, but I think one of the other things we need to think about is during the war, from whom are we not hearing? Mm -hmm. um, and you know I hinted at the fact that you know this is one of the reasons I very much wanted our project and sat down with the archivist and was like, look, we have got to go all the way through Reconstruction, even a little bit into the New South. Yeah. And uh, Leslie Gordon and Julia Brock over at the University of Alabama, they're, they're doing that same thing. Because until you get to Reconstruction, you are not hearing from African-Americans. You're hearing about African-Americans, but you're not hearing from them. And this ties into memory, too, that we need to think about. You know, we, we talked last week with Barney Scobie, one of the interpreters um, at Natchez, um, what is it, Natchez National Historical Park. Yeah. And... You know, you know, you remember you know, 17,000 African-Americans from Mississippi fought for the Union. And yet, you know, it is very difficult to find a monument recognizing this other than at places like Vicksburg, for example. Um, if you go to the Vicksburg National Military Park, they've, they've done a great job of documenting that. Um, but it's it's a rarity to find these monuments um, across the country. And yet, you know, Mississippi's not alone in this. This is this is a very important part of the military experience that, again, it gets just just washed out of, of the memory of the war. And by going into reconstruction, by getting into some of these documents and also, by the way, one of the things I think we're going to want to start to do is cross reference it with some Freedmen's Bureau records and others and pension records. Staff does a lot of the background research on these documents mm -hmm. and we get into these pension claims. You know, by getting into federal pensions and finding guys who served in the U.S. Colored Troops and some of these other units, you, you again are going to be able to start to to make sure we're remembering what actually happened and what was actually experienced. I think part of the problem with that is, is that we seem to we often think of African-Americans as almost a kind of stateless population. Right. There's northerners, there's southerners and there's African-Americans. And of course, they are in fact residents of their states and their communities. And, and they've been for so long sort of written out of that public narrative. And a lot of it has to do with, again, to, to talk about monuments, right? It has to do with who was putting up the monuments primarily the United Daughters of the Confederacy. So, you know, how does the UDC want to commemorate African-Americans in the war? They want a monument to Mammies, okay? The Southern Mammy Monument, and they have a faithful slave monument in Harper's Ferry. Yep, yep, the one, yep, it's right on the corner. <laughs> it's brutal, right? And, yeah, I was and so, you know, it, it's, it, it, 
that's not the monument. And even a, a monument, say the, the Lincoln and Emancipation Monument in Washington, D.C., is seen by African-Americans both now and even you know Frederick Douglass at the time as incredibly problematic in framing emancipation as something that Lincoln gave to African-Americans rather than something that African-Americans took for themselves. So it's tricky. And, and I think it's so important that you're going into reconstruction um, because also the story of the civil war doesn't end. It doesn't have a neat ending. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't just pick a date and say it's over. And so by going into reconstruction and then even a little bit past reconstruction, you're showing people implicitly the messiness of all of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's interesting, too, um, one of the things that comes out of those Reconstruction-era documents are the number of Union veterans who stayed in Mississippi, mm-hmm. white Union veterans, veterans I'm talking about here, yeah. um, who, you know, they're, they're sheriffs, they're, you know, sitting on, you know, county boards and things like this up until about the early 70s. And then you start to see these guys coming under more and more attack. Um, there's some great letters that they're writing into the governor saying, look, you have got to send some troops. Things are getting absolutely out of control. You know, there are these documents talking about African-American families and their homes. Their homes are getting shot up um, every time there's an election. You know, you, you have to do something. And what you see, of course, is by 74, 75, 76, you know, there, there's a clear sense that there's not going to be any federal support. Governor Albert Ames really feels like He's like, there's just not much he can do. He starts to get, you know, under more and more pressure. He literally is going to wind up getting impeached. And so it's, it's, you, you, you watch it breaking down. You're, you're literally watching the system. And then one of the reasons I wanted to go all the way kind of beyond the end of reconstruction into the new South is is so that we can start to see. So what does that look like? What, what, what does happen um, when you pretty much have reached a point where white Mississippians either don't want to or refuse to, um, help protect the rights of Black Mississippians. Um, what does the state look like? And to be honest, perfectly candid with everybody, we're not entirely sure. Um, literally, some of the Governor Stone's collections have have not even kind of been fully processed. I mean, wow. they've been processed, but but they haven't necessarily. The calendars for them are very brief and dated. And so, one of the things that the archivists we were talking about this on Monday that they're excited about is really getting into these um, that and just just what what happens like, like like literally let's watch what that breakdown looks like and let's as citizens let's let's think about you know what happens when citizens don't fulfill their responsibilities to each other um and it's it, i think it's going to be one of the most powerful parts of the collection and you're going to 1882 is that right yeah, yeah. Disfranchisement in Mississippi is what, 1890 Constitution? Yes. It'll be interesting, right? This is still a period where African American men can vote. Yes, exactly. And so those documents that we're seeing, like I said, anywhere from about 70 to about 76, um, you, you have moments where Mississippi, you know, like Governor Alcorn, for example, um, I think we I can't, we talked about it at some point. I can't remember when. There's this great document. Um, if you just go to the sample document site and you do a keyword search for Ganey, G-A-I-N-E-Y, that's where you'll find that document where Governor Alcorn's agent is investigating um, Klan violence. Mm-hmm. And so you, you can see some efforts. Um, historians have argued that one of the reasons Governor Alcorn is doing this is because he doesn't want as much federal interference 
white Mississippians want to be able to control these policies on their own. But Alcorn's also, you know, trying to show that, you know, this is wrong and he's, he is trying to investigate and stop this violence. As it goes on, though, it, it just increasingly comes absolutely out of control and both the state and the federal government are not willing to intervene to stop yeah. it. Hmm. Steph, how can uh, viewers get involved? How can they help out in any way, shape, or form with this project? Because I still get messages about this. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, we we want volunteers. We want them desperately. Um, we're at a little bit of a standstill right now with documents. Um, we should be getting some more very soon. Um, looking at June is kind of what we've been talking about with MDAH. Um, COVID, just like everyone else, um, COVID has really kind of um, hindered our um, digitization process to get everything up on from the page. However, we do know we're going to have large batches soon. Like I said, um, June 20. 2021 coming up in just a couple of months. Um, we will have some more documents for folks to transcribe. And I can't tell you enough how much we rely on the community to help us transcribe those letters. Yes, we do. We have student employees who go in and do it, but we really need them um, on the editor side of things to be going through and cleaning things up. So the more community members that help us out, the sooner these documents um, will go into our final Omeka S site, um, which should also go live in June. We're very proud of that. Um, and so please come and help us out. Um, if you are interested, um, please follow our Twitter account, which, um, John, if you could put that up there somehow. Um, yeah, our Twitter account. We have a Facebook account. Um, we're hoping to create a newsletter soon so folks would be able um, to put their email address into an account and we'll let you know when those are available. Um, but please, just because they're not ready right this second, um, doesn't mean we don't desperately need your help. We really need your help with this. Susanna, you want to say anything else about that? I was just going to make sure, John, I feel like we keep giving you tasks when really you're running the entire show. No, but, okay. uh, but John can put the stuff on the screen. So it looks yeah, so yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we can put the link to the sample document site. Oh, we'll yeah. Sure everybody can get to that. Y'all, Steph, <laughs> I had a dream. Steph made it happen. Um, I wanted to give people a sense of what is in a governor's collection, right? I mean, you, you, if you've been listening over the weeks, you've heard me talk about this, but if you really want to get a sense of what's in there, the sample document site has about 80 documents that I just kind of work with the archivist. We, we pulled them. I can't promise you it's representative. We haven't been through the whole collection, but Steph helped us find a way to really kind of present this to the public. We got feedback scholars like Anne. And, you know, to really help people get a sense of what's there, we've broken into these four categories that you, we have featured on this live stream and on the podcast of memory and commemoration of emancipation and the kind of the changing definition of citizenship. Um, there's another theme about descent and, and then there's also the theme of kind of the military experience. And so you can find documents helping you think through those. There's essays there. And so for each one of these episodes, there are this, all the sample documents that we're talking about. You can go read those documents. You can see the original and you can also read the transcriptions. Um, and site that goes live. Oops, sorry, Steph, go ahead. I was going to say another thing I want to say about that website, the sample doc website. Um, I noticed because after every one of these Facebook live events, I immediately go and look at the comments within about 20 seconds, just because I want to see what our audience was saying. Um, but I noticed that we have a lot of K through 12 teachers um, mm -hmm. who are in our audience. Or if you know someone who is a K through 12 um, teacher, and especially if they're working in Mississippi or they're teaching Civil War history, even if it's not in Mississippi, um, we had a phenomenal group 
of teachers that were hired over last summer to actually write lesson plans based on CWRGM and these four different themes. That's for fourth grade, Mississippi studies, and high school. Um, so please go look at these um, lesson plans. I know we're getting to the end of the school calendar year, but I am the daughter of two K through 12 teachers, and I know they start planning as early as the summer. Um, so if you are interested in adding some new things to your content in your classroom, boy, do we have resources for you. And you can even let them listen to these podcasts because they will be linked with those documents as well. So yeah, go take a look, my K through 12 teachers. Y'all, I should add, sorry, this is Harlow. She wants Hi, to add. Harlow. Um, I should add, by the way, we're going to do a uh, virtual educator workshop with MDAH this summer on June 29th. Uh, there's only 26 slots, but you don't have to be here to do it. It's all virtual. Yeah. So, you know, by all means, if you want to dive into these documents even more, if you want to think about ways to use them in your classroom, join us. Um, if you go to, like I said, go to CWRGM.org, we'll be advertising this so you can sign up. Mm -hmm. And if I, if I may, I want to say about these original documents, not only the documents you'll be working with uh, if you help out with this project, but every other primary resource you come across in your lifetime as a student of history, there will be times where you will be uncomfortable and there will be times it might hurt a little bit. I totally understand that. But guess what? Going to the gym to build muscle hurts <laughs> and, and sometimes losing weight hurts and is uncomfortable. But that's how we grow as historians and citizens, I dare say. So I think it's very important to look through these documents and think about the audience that this document, these documents are supposed to be read by, who wrote them, and the message that it brings across, and what we can learn from each individual document, because I'm sure we can learn something from every one of these documents in some form or fashion. And that's how we grow as not only historians, but citizens. And that's my soapbox for primary sources, because I have been made uncomfortable many times, and I have grown due to that. And uh, I think that's the beauty of history. This is also nice for anybody who has bad handwriting and has been told that in the good old days they used to teach handwriting. Yeah, go back to these 19th century documents. They're not all beautiful. Um, and it's true. You get better and better at transcribing and reading them. Um, but it's okay, you guys. If you if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to build the muscle John's talking about, you still can learn and you know build your right. brain muscles, if you will. Um, from the transcribed documents. And, you know, these are all going to be tagged so that you can kind of connect to other documents that relate to the subject matter of the one that you're reading. Steph and I are working with a fantastic developer by the name of Annalise Daner, um, who's really helping us kind of think through this and make sense of it. So it's, I just, it is so much fun to be a part of this. Um, if you're in a state that doesn't have something like this and you're thinking about it, by all means, reach out to us. Um, all of us doing governor's projects kind of collaborate and work together. We're, we're always interested in more folks getting involved. It's a fantastic way to learn. Steph, yeah. I'd like you to take this question before we go because uh, Brian Jackson asked this, and I think it's a great here. question. And Brian's here. Uh, are you looking for academics or public school teachers or amateur history geeks like me? Oh my goodness, all of the above. <laughs> all of the above. We at CWRGM, we take anyone who is interested um, in helping us transcribe. Um, most folks who are volunteers um, are not academic historians. They're not public school teachers. They're literally just individuals who are interested in the content. And I will say with that being said, if you have never transcribed before, um, the first couple of documents, you may be very confused and it may be very difficult. And that is okay. We have great 
videos um, that are linked to kind of help you with transcription. Um, I have been a historian for a hot second now, and I have transcribed for years. And I can tell you that still sometimes I will look at these documents and have to call and be like, what in the world does this say? Um, but I tell my students a lot of times, if you're old enough to remember seeing eye posters, um, if you'll look at it, you won't see anything. You'll look at it, you won't see anything. And then one day you will come back and relook at it. And all of a sudden everything makes sense and you see every word in the document. Um, so please um, keep up with it. And of course, if you have any questions on our From the Page account, on our CWRGM sample site, we have ways to contact us. Um, so if you join us in June, when these documents are more readily available um, and you do have questions, we have a support team who are ready to help you answer those. Awesome. Awesome. Well, this has been a fantastic episode to uh, go out with, with our five weeks of this stuff. Susanna, how have you enjoyed it? Have you enjoyed this five weeks? Okay. If people, people who know me well know that after about 5 p.m., I would like to have a cocktail on the porch and really not talk to a whole lot of people, even those I love dearly and they love me. And, and so I, they forgive that in me. The fact that I have had this much fun after 5 p.m., I mean, just I, I've had a blast. This is this is fantastic. And I'm just so grateful, you know, to to you, John, to Steph and, and Anne and for all the historians who joined us over the week, you know, weeks. It's just it's fantastic. And you're helping us. Right. You, you say these things, right? Like Anne's like, uh, remember, nobody wrote in happy to the governor. So don't go too far with that. Right. I mean, that's why historians, that's why we talk to each other, like to think about this stuff. And so I'm so mm -hmm. grateful, you know, Anne, that you made the time to join us tonight. Well, I'm delighted that you invited me and this has been great. And I've really been enjoying watching the other episodes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for, for being on the panel tonight and for doing this and for everyone watching right now remember that this will also be a podcast next week so yeah. we will we will drop that podcast next wednesday so if you want to hear the audio version of this while you're in your car or whatever it is you do uh, at the gym or whatever else we will be dropping that podcast episode next wednesday and uh i i want to thank susanna and steph for being here for five weeks with me and putting up with me for five weeks uh and uh and thank you so much for for being our guest tonight it really does mean a lot to us thank you it was so nice to meet you great meeting you uh everyone please be safe take care of yourselves uh i have all of the links in the chat uh, so that you may click on them instead of just seeing them on the screen and having to wonder what if you got the address right you can just click on them right in the chat and you can head on over to cwrgm and and check everything out there and look at the sample documents and see how you can get involved. We appreciate all of you sticking with us for five weeks of doing this. We hope you've uh, gotten a lot of information out of each one of these episodes, and we hope that you are safe and healthy, and please stay that way so we all can be together at a conference someday soon, or a tour, or at a historical site, whatever it may be. So everyone, please have a wonderful night. We will chat with you very soon.